we moved the needle by raising money and awareness. So then we would talk and say, hey, let's make it sexy to care. Let's make it cool. We got to get straight people and, you know, LGBTQIQ all in together because in any civil rights movement, and to be clear, this is a civil rights thing. Human rights, civil rights. You need everybody on board. You need the people that make it look sexy. You need the rich folks that will shell out. And you need government agencies. What you should focus on first is information. Information is power. You'll know what to do. And if you have this information, you bring it forth to the European Parliament, they'll see what it is. It's concrete, it's black and white. You're showing it to them. It's not like you're just saying it. That was music artist and activist Cindy Lauper speaking at the launch of Perceptions, a new report from Milky Europe based on a survey exploring the experiences of LGBTIQ organisations in Europe and Central Asia in working on the issue of youth homelessness. The report was created in association with True Colours United, which was co-founded in 2008 by Cindy, to find and implement solutions to the problem of LGBTIQ youth homelessness in America. Hello. I'm Brian Finnegan, and in this episode of The Frontline, we're looking at the rising issue of LGBTIQ youth homelessness in Europe and Central Asia. The Perception Survey finds that over 60% of the organisations surveyed have worked with young LGBTIQ people experiencing homelessness. A comparative report from the European Federation of National Organisations Working with the Homeless, otherwise known as FIANSA, was published on the same day. It also finds that over 60% of homeless services organisations have dealt with young LGBTIQ people, but often without training or support. In this episode, we're talking about the results of both reports and about the ways forward for tackling LGBTIQ youth homelessness. Our guests are author of the Ilgi Europe Report, Dr. James Shelton from True Colours United, Policy Officer with Fianza, Robbie Stakelam, Ilk Europe's Programmes Director, Bjorn von Rusendahl, and Silvia Magino from Association Quare in Turin, Italy, which has set up a housing project for LGBTIQ people in difficulty. I'll hand you over now to my colleague Nadzea, who's hosting the conversation, and our apologies in advance for any variances in sound quality. And thank you, Brian. Welcome to you, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I would like to come to you, Robbie, first. I know that FIANSA that you represent is the only European organization that focuses exclusively on the fight against homelessness. So I'd like to ask you to share your insights into the phenomenon of homelessness. Could we start by addressing, you know, an ostensibly obvious definition of homelessness? And when we say that the person is homeless, what do we actually mean? It is a very easy question, uh, but perhaps it's not such an easy answer. Um, I think to be blunt about it, uh, homelessness is when you don't have a home. The challenge that we have as an organization across Europe is that there is a misconception about what homelessness actually is. People who are listening to this podcast are thinking about homelessness right now. The likelihood is they're thinking of a man in their 30s or 40s, probably white, probably straight with an alcohol or drug addiction problem possibly sleeping rough on the street, outside a station, outside a cafe. That is a um, stereotype of homelessness that is pretty consistently perpetuated across um, 
the media, the challenge that we have is that isn't the reality of homelessness at all. There are about 700,000 people sleeping rough or in emergency accommodation every day in Europe. It is a number that is increasing in every EU country, with the exception of Finland. And part of the reason for that is that we have an incorrect image of what homelessness actually is. So, for example, when we talk about homelessness as an, or- as an organization, we look at it across three, we call them domains. We have the physical, the social and the legal. Physical is if you don't have four walls around you and a roof over your head, you're probably sleeping rough on the street, you're homeless. That's an experience of homelessness. The social element is whether you can have the social use of a space. What we mean by that is if you think of people who are in emergency accommodation, hotels, B&Bs, they might be staying somewhere, but they don't have social use of that space. They can't invite friends over. Sometimes they can't have their family over. Sometimes their children can't join them. Sometimes they're kicked out at eight o'clock in the morning. You don't have social use. Um, And the third element is legal, where you don't have a legal right to reside. And so there we're talking about people who are living in squats. You might have the four walls, you might have the social use, but you don't actually have a legal right to reside. And particularly when we talk about LGBTIQ youth homelessness, we find the legal element is very common because what a lot of people do um, with LGBTIQ homelessness in particular, we talk about the community a lot in LGBTIQ circles. The community is very supportive. And what we find is young people tend to sofa surf. They stay with friends for one week and they move to another friend and move to another friend, but they don't have a legal right to reside in any of those situations. And actually, they're right on the cusp of homelessness all the time. And so that's something that we see often with homelessness. And the other element with legal that we often find is exploitation in the rental market. So again, we find young people in particular can't um, access the rental market because their income isn't high enough. There's a lot of conditions about having references from landlords, having a permanent contract, having a deposit, having all these different obstacles that prevent them from accessing mainstream rental. And they end up going into what we might call the black market of the rental market. And there they're exploited by landlords. They might be paying rent, but they actually don't have any rights and they can be exploited very easily and evicted. And it sounds like a very obvious or simple starting point. But if we don't challenge this misconception about homelessness, that it encounters or encompasses all these things of the physical, the social, the legal, What you then have is in the mindset of policymakers is they are designing policies that are for men in their 30s or 40s that match this stereotype of homelessness. And what we need is to have solutions out there and policies um, and prevention strategies in place that incorporates uh, LGBTIQ people as well. And so I think this misconception is one of the biggest things we need to work on in order to get policies that are fully inclusive. Thank you for for your answer. But I'm also wondering, apart from policies, obviously there are homeless uh, services that are out there that are tackling this issue and this phenomenon and providing certain services for homeless people. And I know that Fianza and True Colors did a survey in 2019 and mapped the experiences of mainstream homeless organizations that are working with LGBTI homeless youth. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the main findings in terms of what are the services that are out there that are accessible and available for LGBTI uh, young people? And do they address the needs that LGBTI young people have? And what are the obstacles and the challenges the services face in working with LGBTI young people? 
Yeah. So from the survey results, I think what we found, and Jema can also feel free to jump in as uh, as one of the lead researchers on that particular research piece. We found that about 41 of the respondents worked with LGBTIQ young people. Um, 13 didn't know and 10 said they don't full stop. And I think what we really took from that was that well over half of our member organizations are working with LGBTIQ young people. The challenge, however, that exists is very few of them are doing tailored specific work around the needs of LGBTIQ young people. And I I find that one of the things that really stuck out for me in that report was when we asked them, how do you know that you work with LGBTIQ young people, um, i.e. how are you collecting this data? Either they say, we just know as an organization from a young person, we just know that they're LGBTIQ or they say that the youth tell the staff. And I find um, what's really challenging with that situation is you're really putting the burden onto a vulnerable young person who's probably been through a lot of trauma related to their sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, to be very forthcoming in a service that probably isn't very inclusive and doesn't feel very safe. Um, And linked to that, One of the biggest challenges that we encountered from that survey is that services just don't have the training and they don't have the competencies to really deal with LGBTIQ issues. And so what we mean by that is if you go into, if I talk to some of my homeless service providers, our member organizations, they could go in and have um, very detailed conversations with their clients about polydrug use, for example. They can go in and talk about how are they using drugs? What are they doing? What practices? Is it harmful? Do they have harm reduction methods? They can talk about the services out there. They have no issue going and having those conversations. They can, for the life of them, go in and have a conversation about someone's sexual orientation. And the difference is they've never been trained. Social workers are trained to have the competencies, the vocabulary, the confidence to not only have conversations with people about the challenges they face, but included with that are they know they have services and places they can send people uh, for other supports. And I think the difficulties we have at the moment, one of the challenges we have is that not only are we not collecting this data, but at the same time, we don't really have the competency to even have these conversations in homeless services. Jim, I'm not sure if there's something maybe you'd like to add. Yeah, Robbie, thank you. I think um, one of the things that also stood out to me about that research was that regardless of what the respondent said about their organization is currently working with LGBTIQ young people, or they don't know, or they're not, the majority of respondents said they could benefit from some assistance in doing it better. So I think that shows a willingness on the part of homeless service providers to get more information and to do this work in a in as good of a way as they can. And that's great that that, that desire is there and that, that acknowledgement is there. Yeah, I definitely echo that comment um, from all of the members that I've worked with across Europe, frontline homeless service providers. I've never met a service provider that said, we absolutely do not want to do anything on this topic. They've always been very open to reading our resources, coming to webinars, and at least having the conversation to say, okay, what can we do differently? And I think that's part of what the role of Fianza, Ilga Europe, and even I would say a lot of Ilga Europe members are, is you know, if we remember homeless services, they're often underfunded, they're over demanded, they are working with incredibly vulnerable people with not a whole lot of budget, and they're kind of firefighting all the time. And so they're not always, you know, of their own um, decision taking a step back to think, oh, 
are we serving everybody? Is our service fully inclusive? Who are we missing? Because they're just almost like in a war that it's just one battle after another, after another. And I think having organizations like True Colors, like Fianza, like Yoga Europe, like Yoga Europe members coming in to say, have you thought about this? And to start the conversation and to uh, you know signpost towards resources, it's, it's really great to get people to start thinking about, okay, here's actually how we can start collecting data. Here's actually how we create a service that is inclusive. And one thing I would add to that is I think sometimes as well, we love to put a plaster over a problem and to come up with really quick fix solutions. But, you know, simply hanging a pride flag up into a service doesn't make it inclusive either. And one thing that we are working with our members on is how do you fully create an inclusive space? And so that includes having training on competency, understanding what is sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression. How do you have these conversations with young people? Um, in a way that is not only inclusive, but is also quite empowering to them. And so that not only when you walk into a space and you see perhaps a pride flag or a statement of inclusion, it's not just words, but also in how a service is delivered and how you work with that organization. Um, it feels authentic and it feels safe. It, it, it sounds like it's a, it's a simple but very complex at the same time issue that has to be tackled from from different angles in a way not only by homeless organizations but also uh, by lgbti organizations that are working with lgbti communities and i wonder if we can come to you Gemma, to talk a little bit about the survey that uh, was just launched by ilga europe and true colors on the experiences of specifically lgbti organizations that are working or not working on lgbti youth homelessness i actually wanted to come back to what robbie said about the needs of lgbti young people can you talk a little bit more about what are the specific needs of lgbti homeless people and maybe also about do you think they are more vulnerable to homelessness and why what are the reasons behind it and do you think that specific subgroups are kind of more at risk of becoming or being homeless for a long time i can definitely speak to that and i i think um my knowledge about you know vulnerability of lgbtiq youth experiencing homelessness and um different subgroups and things like that is primarily based in the in the US so I would be speaking kind of from a North American perspective around those things I think that's because we've we've done this initial survey research like we've partnered with Ilga and Fianza to do we've done that in the states um, a couple of years ago and so now have begun to build a more kind of robust knowledge base around the causes and specific vulnerabilities and things like that. So that's a goal going forward um, in partnership with Ilga and Fianza, hopefully, if, if um, should everyone agree to continue doing this work. Uh, so, you know, speaking from the American perspective, LGBTQ uh, IQ young people are overrepresented in the population of youth experiencing homelessness. We have some pretty consistent research findings to demonstrate that. They've been estimated to make up between 25 to 40 percent of the population of youth experiencing homelessness, whereas the estimates around the general population of young people that identifies or that are LGBTIQ is around 7 to 10 percent. So they're disproportionately uh, represented. I do think, um, of course, that some societal rejection and family rejection are contributing factors. However, I want to make it very clear that from my perspective, particularly in the U.S. context, you cannot separate the idea of poverty from the idea of homelessness. Those things are deeply intertwined. So it would be kind of a false narrative to say that it's just about family rejection, though that is certainly some people's experience and definitely needs to be paid attention to. And in the States, 
young people who are Black and other young people of color and trans young people tend to experience homelessness at higher rates than white cisgender LGBTIQ young people, right? So we see some subpopulations that are at greater risk. And I, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, and Bourne, you can certainly um, interject here, that some of the some of the reasons noted in the ELGA research were, you know, family conflict around identity. Also, migrant and refugee status was something that we saw in the ILGA research that we don't see in the states, although we do see some um, immigration issues definitely impacting people's vulnerability to homelessness. Uh, Bjorn, were, were there other things that stood out to you about the causes in that report? Um, I, I think two other um, uh, reasons that were cited in the report included the, the, the lack of institutional support um, to tackle homelessness and, and indeed family-related conflict and societal rejection. So I think you, you named the key reasons. I'd like to actually come back a little bit to the to the research that we're talking about. I don't know whether Bjorn, you would like to comment that or you, Gemma. I was wondering about like one of the aims of the research when I read it was to try and estimate the prevalence of LGBTI homelessness. And um, I know that there are only 71 organizations that completed the survey out of 650. And I know that some people would have a question, what these numbers mean? What these numbers tell us about the LGBTI homelessness as a phenomenon and about its prevalence. I can I can start yeah. um, if you like and Bjorn you can certainly also speak to that. I, I do think it's very important that we contextualize all of these findings within that relatively small sample size compared to the number of organizations that we reached out to and just a plug here from both surveys, both the Fianza study and the ILGA study, there was a lot of outreach and a lot of folks invited, and we saw really um, small response rates. So encouraging folks to please take a moment to respond um, to surveys when they come around about this topic, it will really help a lot, right? So, you know, we do have to contextualize the findings in that small sample size, but I think we cannot assume that just because only 71 responded, that only 71 organizations are dealing with or seeing homelessness among this population. Um, I think there are many reasons for the low response rate um, that that Bjorn can probably speak to better than I can. But even within, you know, what it, one thing that it tells us, even within those 71 organizations, that there is not a clear uh, way to estimate the prevalence of LGBTIQ youth homelessness. And we saw this also in the Fianza report where um, a lot of, I think one third of, one third of organizations or a quarter of organizations, I'm sorry, in the ILGA report chose the response option. Option. I honestly have no idea what percentage of the youth homelessness population is LGBTIQ. Um, and the most common estimate was 10 to 20%, with a third of organizations reporting that. So it tells us something. It gives us a place to work from. No one said there are no LGBTIQ youth experiencing homelessness. So we know that much based on, the, on this study. And we know that we need better ways to be able to gauge the prevalence. Uh, no, I would just echo what Jema has said about perhaps, okay, maybe the response rate was a little bit low and there's many different reasons for that. I think Bjorn can definitely um, attest to some of those reasons in a moment, maybe. But what is important is also to think about where do the findings of both reports sit with one another in that they actually find very similar results. And at the same time, where do they sit with the other academic data that's out there in Europe uh, and also data from statistical offices? Uh, and we know from the Fundamental Rights Agency, um, their survey on the LGBTIQ community, 
they estimate that or they found that one in five members of the LGBTIQ community have a former experience of homelessness in their life. That rises to one in three for trans people and nearly 40% of intersex people. So actually, when you look at the data from our reports, it isn't the exact same, but it tallies quite closely to what uh, LGBTIQ people themselves report. But what's even more interesting is we have data from EU Silk, which is a survey run by Eurostat that looks at the standards of income and living conditions in Europe. And that found that 4% of the general population has a former experience of homelessness in their lifetime. So you can clearly see 4% of people are saying in the general population have a former experience of homelessness. But you're talking about about 20% of LGBTIQ people. So you can see from the data that's there that there is definitely a higher prevalence uh, of LGBTIQ homelessness. You only wanted to add something to Robbie's comment? Yeah, thank you, Nadzea. And I think it's, it, it is clear to us, and this was one, one reason for, important reason for us to start working on this survey, that homelessness, LGBTIQ youth homelessness is an issue that is hugely under uh, addressed within the LGBTI movement. Um, and I think the, the numbers that, that we're looking at in the survey confirm that. In particular, also when you look at the numbers that say that 75% of the organizations that has responded has actually worked to, at some point, address the needs of LGBTI people experiencing homelessness. But at the same time, 63% has stated that they do not have the organizational knowledge to, uh, to to do this work or not sufficient levels of organizational knowledge. And only 24% of the organizations that has responded. So that is only 24% out of 73 organizations in, in Europe and Central Asia knows where to refer LGBTI uh, youth to when experiencing homelessness. So I think that, that those numbers also tell us that there is, there's an awful lot of work to be done. Thank you, Bjorn. And I will I will to use this moment to come to Sylvia, who represents Quora, an organization that is working with LGBTI homeless people, just to continue the conversation that Bjorn started about the challenges and, and opportunities and experiences of LGBTI organizations. And I wonder if you could tell a little bit us more to, uh, to us about the course uh, project to housing that you launched in January 2019 that provides services for LGBTI people affected by poverty and homelessness. And uh, maybe you can expand a little bit and say what is the model of the to housing project? What are the services that uh, you provide? Thank you, Nadeja. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to share my story and the story of the to housing project in Turin. Allow me just a very quick forward uh, about our context. Uh, the project is in Turin, in Italy, and uh, Italy scores a very low rate uh, at the ILGA Europe uh, Rainbow Index because uh, we score only a total of 28. So that means that we are living in a very patriarchal society, we do not have any laws, anti-discrimination policy uh, protecting LGBTI people. So that being said, we were able two years ago, as you mentioned, in January 2019, to open uh, the doors of our project that is called TO Housing that can count on five apartments uh, with a capacity of 24 persons uh, with, in, a, in a temporary residence. Um, we are welcoming anyone who is identifying, self-identifying as LGBTIQ. And the service model can be described as a co-housing because cohabitation um, and active cohabitation is part of 
the methodology. Uh, that means that we encourage our guests to have a cooperative approach in, in their process of uh, towards autonomy and uh, independence. This proves to be effective uh, because uh, the guests, uh, we call it guests instead of uh, beneficiaries or clients, the guests are somehow reassured uh, or on at least two aspects because they don't feel to live in a pathologizing dimension, a clinic dimension, and on the other and they can they have the chance to share their own experience uh, with peers talking about the model again um, the to housing is strongly based on a support system that means that besides providing them with housing and the foods of course we are supporting it's all about supporting and empowering empowering uh, lgbt uh, IQ people, not only use. I need to clarify this also, also because uh, we are not welcoming only youth, but people of all ages. Uh, maybe I can give you a little bit more details about uh, the the, ra- the age ranges. So, uh, talking about the support system, our beneficiaries or guests are, are taken over by professionals who can provide them with psychological counseling. Uh, medical aid, medical support, as well as legal support, and above all, vocational guidance and career guidance, job placement guidance, which is essential for their reintegration process. And uh, as far as migrant and people with migrant background, uh, we support them toward the recognition of international protection here in Italy. Talking about our guests, we have had a little bit more than 60 guests so far from the beginning. And uh, I can say that most of our or, or, or their stories uh, show how the, the Soji dimension has so affected their life, the course of their lives. That is quite clear in every story. And um, while we can uh, somehow identify some trends in terms of data or a characteristic they might they may have it's far more difficult to to identify trends in terms of wise uh, as you all know as uh, Robbie was mentioning and Jama was mentioning uh, it's particularly difficult to, difficult to understand the interrelation of so many factors uh, in in, uh, in a homeless life or people experiencing any kind of housing difficulties. To conclude, I think I was a little bit long. If there's a word I can think about to associate our guests with, I would say abandonment. Abandonment, of course, from the family of of origin, but also uh, abandonment from the education system that fails to recognize their identity uh, and, and that leads to poor education. Or abandonment from the social system, the social services, which, again, likewise, do not uh, acknowledge uh, their condition. And, of course, abandonment means also other uh, uh, factors, as Robbie was mentioning, uh, mental distress or drug abuse, which are also patterns in the lives of those of the guests that we are seeing. So that that, that was uh, the the main uh, features of uh, our model, service model.
Thank you. Thank you, Sylvia. It's it's quite a disheartening picture, even though I think your answer also illustrates how many other systems are in play, like education and social services and family support and all that, like that we all have to come together. So there's not one actor in a way who, who has a responsibility to, to tackle the root causes of uh, LGBTI youth homelessness. But I actually was wondering if we can come back to the data and trends that you were talking about, but because I know that you collected some data and I think it's quite interesting if you can speak about, if not about why, but maybe about who accessing your services uh, over the last two years. Are there some trends? Uh, or can you see that the certain age group or any other characteristic that are more vulnerable or are more at risk? Sure. Um, as far as the composition of our guests, uh, we can say that the 60% are gay men, uh, the 30% are transgender people, and only 10% uh, are lesbian. Uh, and Nadeja, we were wondering why, and uh, we leave that for a further for another podcast, maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> Talking about age, uh, as I was mentioning, we are open to all ages. Uh, we want to uh, give this opportunity to all uh, people of all age and uh, the most uh, relevant range of age are from 18 to 25. That means in in uh, in the number of 39%. And the second range is from 26 to 35, another 39%. Uh, so that means that most of our guests are in the range between uh, 18 and uh, 20 and uh, sorry and 36 talking about the country of origin this is quite also an interesting data because uh we have the 53 percent are coming from italy all over italy actually we are receiving requests from all over the country and the rest are coming from africa asia south america and other and extra european country that means that more than 30 percent uh, are coming from different countries and that's why we are uh, intensifying our activities to help them in the whole process of the um, international protection recognition and all uh, and, and we are addressing uh, particularly their needs uh, that means Italian classes and uh, documentation and uh, so on and so forth. These are the main characteristics uh, as far as as far as age. Uh, if we uh, cross the self-identification LGBTIQ element with age, we discover that uh, again the the, uh, the majority. Uh, in the younger ranges are gay men, followed by trans persons. Uh, as far as uh, average of stay, uh, we have two different protocols of stay, the emergency protocol and the, the longer protocol, which is the, the, the support activity project. And uh, in the first uh, protocol, the emergency protocol, protocol, the average stay is of five weeks, while for the project protocol, the average stay is nine months. Again, we want that to be a temporary residence, just because we want to encourage a project of autonomy and independence. So it has to be temporary. I think your, your comment also speaks to the, the importance of looking at intersectionality at the 
that LGBTI people are not only LGBTI people, they have also other identities, for example, being migrant or being a refugee or being an asylum seeker or having uh, maybe struggling with some mental health issues or, or other sets of identities. Now I want to, I think we're coming to a last set of questions and reflections. And uh, I think we've painted um, a quite complex, I would say, and not really bright picture. And I wonder if we can uh, take a moment and uh, give a couple of reflections maybe each uh, in terms of what can be done or what must be actually done. What what are the next steps that we, or not only us, but also other actors, uh, political and social actors, have to take? And maybe I will come to you, Bjorn, uh, and uh, ask you about the ILGA Europe's perspective in terms of next steps and the future of our work. Thank you. And, and in doing that, I really want to start with describing where this, where this journey um, has come from, where we have started. Because I remember very vividly a few years ago when Jema and Jema, your colleague Gregory, who's the director of True Colors, um, you started to come to our conference because you said we, we want to share our knowledge. We want to show what we've learned in the US and we want to see how we can support you in starting a, a, a learning journey, which was at the same time when Robbie, we also got in touch with you. And we said there is so much that uh, True Colors, uh, Vianza and Ilga Europe can learn from each other. And this is this is a piece of work that we can't do alone. And I think in that in that collaboration that is so unique and it has been so beautiful in terms of bringing our collective strengths together. Because True Colors knew how to do this work from, from, from the U.S. experience. Fiance, you guys have such a deep experience tackling homelessness with general popula populations in, in, in Europe. And we have the, the knowledge and, and the, the membership of LGBTI organizations that we were able to bring in. And that is a, a unique component in any steps that need to be taken further because I think that such corporations also need to be, be brought to the, to, to the local level. One of the very first things that I remember happened in one of those workshops that we organized a few years ago was that we were talking precisely at what you, Robbie, were describing at the beginning, namely that LGBTI people often don't recognize when they're homeless because we haven't done a lot of awareness raising on, on, on what homelessness is. And we often take it for granted that it's normal that the community steps forward and steps, steps in to support one another. And so the first thing that really needs to happen way more than is happening now is awareness raising. And that's, that's the part that I think at ILGA Europe that we want to take forward with our membership is bringing knowledge on what homelessness is from the experience of this research, but also the learning that we've done collaboratively. And with that really bring together members. And Sylvia, you've been giving such a great examples of the kind of work that's, that, that can happen. Um, something that ILGA Europe will never be an expert on because we don't work directly with communities. But I think what we see then as our role is for us to bring together members who have worked on these issues, who want to get started working on these issues, and to work together with, with all of you, Fiance, True Colors, and, and, and members in facilitating some of that knowledge sharing so that we understand where we can begin. Because there's so many things that need to happen. Um, and I think that, that one of the things that Cindy Lover was saying on the call that we had last week was research. We need research, 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 because we only know the tip of the iceberg. So that's a point, of course, to start with. But it doesn't mean that we can't start 
getting into action. So whilst we're doing research, we also, I think, need to make sure that organizations start to work on these issues, in particular in places where organizations are not working on it yet. And increasingly, I hear more and more of our members across the region talking about how they're opening up shelters, how they start to collaborate collaborate with homeless Uh, organizations and and I think that needs to be encouraged and uh, supported and the last two things that I'll very quickly say is the other piece that that, that is really important is that we look at funding and this was a real barrier that we've also seen through this survey is, is, is a real issue We've seen through COVID that a lot of LGBTI organizations have started to look into providing services, including shelter, um, to community members in, in the past year or so during COVID. But they often do so from existing resources, resources that were already coming to them to do other community organizing work, to do advocacy work, and it's just not enough. So we, we need to make sure that more funding goes into this direction. And in order to achieve that, we also need to do a lot of political work at the European level and at uh, the membership, uh, the member state uh, level inside the EU, but definitely also countries outside of the EU to make sure that housing becomes accessible for every LGBTI person in in the region, because that ultimately is the goal. I'm often inspired by one of our Finnish members, uh, the Y Foundation. They're the only country, Finland is the only country in Europe that is working towards ending homelessness. And they constantly say, stop talking about homelessness as a complicated issue. It's such a get out of jail free clause for policymakers to say, oh, it's so complicated. It's very confusing. It's very complicated. You know, we really need to think about all these different things because then nothing happens. Uh, And I really challenge that in a lot of the work that we do, including on LGBTQ homelessness, that have we painted a very stark picture today that's not very negative? Probably yes. But it's not a complicated problem to solve. Like we can see from what they've been doing in the US with True Colors and Jamie's organization that there are many, many different solutions that work when it comes to reducing LGBTQ homelessness. And I think if we look at it from a European perspective, there are kind of three key things I see that we need to do in the coming years. One is to continue to challenge this misconception that's out there about what is homelessness uh, for two reasons. First of all, um, you know, Bjorn, you mentioned the workshop that we did at the Ilke Europe conference a few years ago, and I explained the different the definitions of homelessness. After that workshop, I would say between 20 to 30 percent of the participants came up to me and said, I was homeless in my teens. I was homeless in my 20s, but I never realized it until you started talking about the, de- the definition. And the reason that's important is it's not that someone can identify as being homeless, is that they can realize there are resources and supports out there for their situation. And had they realized, I'm actually in a homeless situation right now, they could have gone to different social supports that were out there, but it never occurred to them. The second reason why we need to challenge this misconception that homelessness is a thing for men in their 30s or their 40s is one thing that was really clear from both surveys is the causes of LGBTQ homelessness are largely preventable. You're looking at things around identity, family conflict, lack of social support, poverty more generally, and mental health. But we know from other forms of youth homelessness that early intervention and prevention is absolutely key. And so if we start to reframe what is homelessness, then policymakers start to reframe what are the strategies and solutions and the funding for services that they put in place and to have them in a better position to support LGBTIQ people who are at risk of becoming homeless. The second thing we need to do is focus more on training. And that's already something that we started. Pure mentioned that, yes, we need the research, but we also have to start doing some of the work already 
we've done uh, webinars, we've done trainings uh, with Sylvia's organization, which Recolors United, and with Ilga Europe and Ilga Europe members. And so training homeless service providers to become more inclusive, to be able to be confident in having conversations around LGBTIQ identity and to put services in place to meet those needs, and also supporting LGBTIQ serving organizations to better understand what is homelessness and what how to recognize it and what solutions can you put in place. And the third element I think we need to work on going forward, and it's linked to the training, is improving our data collection systems because it's it, it can't continue as it is at the moment. This idea that we can allow you know intake forms in homeless service providers to just be male, female, and that's all we're asking people. That we're not asking um, about wider questions around sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Because if we don't find a way to ask those questions in a sensitive, inclusive, and respectful way, then we'll always have a get out of jail free call. Uh, card to say, oh, well, it, it's not a problem that we face. Uh, we need to get the data um, in services to demonstrate these people are coming through services, but you're not um, collecting the data right now. And once we have that data, we're in a much better position to start tailoring services to meet those needs. It sounds like like what you're saying is like just to show that the problem is exi- exists and in a way that it's it's solvable and, and challenging the perceptions around what is it and how it can be solved, which is a lot of work as well. Gemma, do you want to come in, uh, please? Yeah. Sure. Thank you. I mean, I think what Robbie and Bjorn said were quite thorough, but I, I would just add or highlight the collaboration. Um, I think that that is a really it's amazing that the groundwork is already laid for that and collaboration is already happening between the organizations. And I think um, it, it really is going to take a lot of collaboration at the community level, people coming together to help really um, address the, the issue. And, you know, the this research, both of these surveys with Fianza and Ilga Europe that, that we conducted were looking at the organizations, right, and understanding their perceptions and challenges and barriers. And I think that um, a key piece of work should also be around understand better understanding the experiences of LGBTIQ young people who are or have experienced homelessness and um, to move towards having LGBTIQ young people at the table when coming up with solutions and um, really moving the work forward because they know better than anyone uh, what their experience has been and what could have possibly prevented it. So that would be the thing that I would highly encourage in the work going forward. It's, it's, it's a great comment on kind of coming closer to the ground and, and listening to this to the stories of people who are affected by homelessness and uh, getting their voices heard. Sylvia, and uh, I want to also to uh, share your perspective as an organizational perspective, but also as a, as a leader organization that has been working with LGBTI people very closely. What do you think, what are the uh, next steps for your project or for your organization? Yeah, let me say that I totally agree what all have been said by Bjorn, Robbie and Jama. Uh, if I may have something, it's from my perspective as activists. And uh, I believe we need to increase the capacity building of activists in uh, undertaking operations like that. And that's what we are doing right now. We are meeting and encouraging other LGBTI Italian organization, uh, not to teach, but uh, to, to tell our story and to tell um, to, to show them 
the tools that uh, we used to that the bring that brought us to open uh, our project in Turin. And yeah, that's uh, pretty much what we would like to do. And the increased capacity building to to better tackle uh, exclusion and poverty is something very close to uh, what Ilga Europe. Uh, is doing with the Nolbe project, for instance, and uh, we are part of the program as well. And uh, we are providing a training session to activists, and uh, I believe that can be one of the uh, way ahead of us. Yeah, it looks like we, we have to work in several directions, in a way tackling the root causes, but also providing services to those people who are homeless now, but also working for the future. But thank you for joining um, us today. It was a pleasure to have this uh, discussion. And I think while the picture is not light or bright, there is hope there because we're not only talking, we, we share the work that he, we have been done and we're planning to do and that is being done. So I hope that there will come more collaboration and more inspiring discussions. You have been listening to The Frontline, Ilga Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. Please subscribe, like or comment wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next time when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now. 